Chapter 7, Part 4 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter 7, Part 4. The Death of President Lincoln, Dedication of the Church of the Covenant, Growing Insomnia, Resolves to Try the Water Cure, Its Beneficial Effects, Summer at Newburgh, Reminiscence of an Excursion to Pulse Point, Death of her Husband's Mother, Funeral of her Nephew, Edward Payson Hopkins. Two events rendered the month of April 1865 especially memorable to Mrs. Prentice. One was the assassination of President Lincoln on the evening of Good Friday. She had been very ill, and her husband, on learning the dreadful news from the morning paper, thought it advisable to keep it from her for a while. But one of the children, going into her chamber, burst into tears, and thus betrayed the secret. Her state of nervous prostration, and her profound affectionate admiration for Mr. Lincoln, made the blow the most stunning by far she ever received from any public calamity. It was such, no doubt, to tens of thousands, indeed to the American people. No Easter morning ever before dawned upon them amid such a cloud of horror, or found them so bowed down with grief. The younger generation can hardly conceive of the depth and intensity, or the strange, unnatural character, of the impression made upon the minds of old and young alike by this most foul murder. The other event was of a very different character and filled her with great joy. It was the dedication, on the last Sunday in April, of the new church edifice, whose growth she had watched with so much interest. In the spring of 1865, she was induced by the entreaty of friends who had themselves tested his skill to consult Dr. Schieferdecker, a noted hydropathist, and later to place herself under his care. In a letter to her cousin, Miss Shipman, she writes, I want to tell you, but do not want you to mention it to anyone, that I have been to see Dr. Schieferdecker to know what he thought of my case. He says that I might go on dieting to the end of my days and not get well, but that his system could and would cure me only it would take a long time. I have not decided whether to try his process, but have no doubt he understands my disease. Dr. Schieferdecker had been a pupil and was an enthusiastic disciple of Priestnitz. He had unbounded faith in the healing properties of water. He was very impulsive, opinionated, self-confident, and accustomed to speak contemptuously of the old medical science and those who practised it. But for all that, he possessed a remarkable sagacity in the diagnosis and treatment of chronic disease. Mrs. Prentice went through the cure with indomitable patience and pluck, and was rewarded by the most beneficial results. Her sleeplessness had become too deep-rooted to be overcome, but it was greatly mitigated, and her general condition vastly improved. She never ceased to feel very grateful to Dr. Schieferdecker for the relief he had afforded her, 
and for teaching her how to manage herself, for after passing from under his care, she still continued to follow his directions. No tongue can tell how much I am indebted to him, she wrote in 1869. I am like a ship that after poking along twenty years with a heavy load on board, at last gets into port, unloads and springs to the surface. To Miss E. S. Gilman, New York, February the 23rd, 1865. It is said to be an ill wind that blows nobody good, and as I am still idling about, doing absolutely nothing but receive visits from neuralgia, I have leisure to think of poor Miss Bank. I wrote to ask her if there was anything she wanted and could not get in her region. Yesterday I received her letter, in which she mentions a book, but says, Anything that is useful for body or mind would be gratefully received. Now, I got the impression from that article in The Independent that she could take next to no nourishment. Do you know what she does take? And can you suggest, from what you know, anything she would like? What's the use of my being sick if it isn't for her sake or that of some other suffering soul? I want very much to get some things together and send her. Nobody knows who hasn't experienced it. How delightfully such things break in on the monotony of a sick room. Just yet I am not strong enough to do anything. My hands tremble so that I can hardly use even a pen. Yet you need not think I am much amiss, for I go out every pleasant day to ride and some days can take quite a walk. The trouble is that when the pain returns, as it does several times a day, it knocks my strength out of me. I hope when all parts of my frame have been visited by this erratic sprite, it may find it worth while to beat a retreat. Only to think we are going to move to number 70 East 27th Street, and you have all been and gone away. The rent is enormous, $1,000 having been just added to an already high price. Our people have taken that matter in hand, and no burden of it will come on us. I received your letter, and am much obliged to you for writing to Miss Bank for me. The reason I did not do it was that it seemed like hurrying her up to thank me for the little drop of comfort I sent her. Dear me, it's hard to be sick when people send you quails and jellies and fresh eggs and all such things, but to be sick and suffer for necessaries must be terrible. To the same, New York, March the ninth, eighteen sixty five. I thank you for the details of Miss Bank's case, as I wished to describe them to some friends. I sent her ten dollars yesterday for two of my friends. I also sent off a box by express, for the contents of which I had help. The things were such as I had persuaded her to mention a new kind of farina, figs, two portfolios. Of course, she didn't ask for two, but I had one I thought she would perhaps like better than the one I bought. A few crackers and several books. Mr. P. added one of those beautiful, large print editions of the Psalms, which will, I think, be a comfort to her. I shall also send Adelaide Newton by and by. I thought she had her hands full of reading for the present, and the great thing is not to heap comforts on her all at once and then leave her to her fate but keep up a stream of such little alleviations as can be provided. She said 
she had poor accommodations for writing so i greatly enjoyed fitting up the portfolio which was none the worse for wear with paper and envelopes a pencil with rubber at the end a cunning little knife some stamps for which there was a small box a few pens etc i know it will please you to hear of this and as the money was furnished me for the purpose you need not set it down to my credit i meant to go to see your sister but my head is still in such a weak state that though i go to walk nearly every day i cannot make calls it is five weeks since i went to church for the same reason it is part of god's discipline with me to keep me shut up a good deal more than the old adam in me fancies but his way is absolutely perfect and i hope i wouldn't change it in any particular if i could have you pusey's tract do all to the lord jesus if not i must send it to you it seems as if i had a lot of things i wanted to say but after writing a little my hands and arms begin to tremble so that i can hardly write plainly you never saw such a lazy life as i lead nowadays i can't do anything i advise you to do what you have to do for christ now by the time you are as old as i am perhaps you will have the will and not the power well good-bye till next time the summer of this year was passed at newburgh in company with the mrs butler now mrs kirkbride of philadelphia and mrs booth of liverpool and the families of mr william allen butler mr b f butler and mr john p crosby to all of whom mrs prentice was strongly attached the late mr daniel lord the eminent lawyer with a portion of his family had also a cottage near by and was full of hospitable kindness in spite of the exacting hydropathic treatment she found constant refreshment and delight in the society of so many dear friends the only thing i have to complain of she wrote is everybody being too good to me how different it is being among friends to being among strangers in a letter to her husband dated new york september the fifteenth eighteen seventy nine mr william allen butler gives the following reminiscence of an excursion to pouts point and an evening at newburgh from the date you give in your note to which i have just recurred of our trip to pouts point it seems that in writing you to-day i have unwittingly fallen on the anniversary of that pleasant excursion without this reminder i could not have told the day or the year but of the excursion itself i have always had a vivid and delightful recollection and if i am not mistaken mrs prentice enjoyed it as fully as any one of the merry party it was only on that jaunt and in our summer home at newburgh that i had the opportunity of knowing her readiness to enter into that kind of enjoyment which depends upon the cooperation of every member of a circle for the entertainment of all the elements of our group were well commingled and the bright things evoked by their contact and friction were neither few nor far between the game to which you allude of inspiration or rhapsody was a favourite the evening at pouts point called out some clever sallies of which i have no record or special recollection but i know that then as always 
Mrs. Prentice seemed to have at her pencil's point for instant use the wit and fancy so charmingly exhibited in her writings. She published somewhere an account of one of our inspired or rhapsodical evenings, but greatly to my regret failed to include in it her own contribution, which was the best of all. I distinctly remember the time and scene, the September evening, the big square sitting-room of the old seminary building in which you boarded, the bright faces whose radiance made up in part for the limitations of artificial light, the puzzled air which everyone took on when presented with the list of unmanageable words to be reproduced in their consecutive order in prose or verse composition within the next quarter or half-hour, the stillness which supervened while the enforced pleasures of poetic pains or prose agony were being undergone, the sense of relief which supplemented the completion of the batch of extempore effusions and the fun which their reading provoked. Mrs. Prentice had contrived out of the odd and incoherent jumble of words a choice bit of poetic humour and pathos, which I never quite forgave her for omitting in the publication of the nonsense written by other hands. These trifles as they seemed at the time, and as in fact they were, become less insignificant in the retrospect, as we associate them with the whole character and being we instinctively love to place at the farthest remove from gloom or sadness, and as they rediscover to us in the distance the native vivacity and grace of which they were the chance expression. Since that summer of 1865, having lived away from New York, I saw little of Mrs. Prentice, but I have a special remembrance of one little visit you made at our home in Yonkers, which she seemed very much to enjoy. Saying of the reunion which made it so pleasant to the members of our family, and all who happened to be together at the time, that it was like heaven. During the summer of 1865, the sympathies of Mrs. Prentice were much wrought upon by the sickness and death of her husband's mother, who entered into rest on the 9th of August, in the 84th year of her age. On the 12th of the previous January, she, with the whole family, had gone to Newark to celebrate the 83rd birthday of this aged saint. Had they known it was to be the last, they could have wished nothing changed. It was a perfect winter's day, and the scene at the old parsonage was perfect too. There, surrounded by children and children's children, sat the venerable grandmother with a benignant smile upon her face and the peace of God in her heart. As she received in birthday gifts and kisses and congratulations their loving homage, the measure of her joy was full, and she seemed ready to say her nunc dimittis. She belonged to the number of those holy women of the old time who trusted in God and adorned themselves with the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, and whose children to the latest generation rise up and call them blessed. In the course of this year, her sympathies were also deeply touched by repeated visits from her brother-in-law, Professor Hopkins, on his way to and from Virginia. Allusion has been made already to the death of her nephew, Lieutenant Edward Payson Hopkins. He was killed in battle while gallantly leading a cavalry charge at Ashland in Virginia on the 11th of May, 1864. 
In June of the following year, his father went to Ashland with the hope of recovering the body. Five comrades had fallen with Edward, and the Negroes had buried them without coffins, side by side, in two trenches in a desolate, swampy field, and under a very shallow covering of earth. The place was readily discovered, but it was found impossible to identify the body. The disappointed father, almost broken-hearted, turned his weary steps homeward. When he reached Williamstown, his friends said, he has grown ten years older since he went away. Several months later, he learned that there were means of identification which could not fail, even if the body had already turned to dust. Accordingly, he again visited Ashland, attended this time by soldiers, a surgeon, and government officials. His search proved successful, and to his joy, not only was the body identified, but owing to the swampy nature of the ground, it was found to be in an almost complete state of preservation. There was something wonderfully impressive in the grave aspect and calm, gentle tone of the venerable man, as with his precious charge he passed through New York on his way home. In a letter to Mrs. Prentice, dated January the 2nd, 1866, he himself tells the story of the reinterment at Williamstown. After stopping a minute at my door, the wagon passed at once to the cemetery, and the remains were deposited in the tomb. This was on Thursday. After consulting with my brother and his son, the chaplain, I determined to wait till the Sabbath before the interment. Accordingly, at three o'clock, after the afternoon service, the remains of my dear boy were placed beside those of his mother. The services were simple, but solemn in a high degree. They were opened by an address from Harry. Prayer followed by Reverend Mr. Noble, now supplying the desk here. He prefaced his prayer by saying that he never saw Edward but once, when he preached at Williamstown at a communion, and saw him sitting beside me and partaking with me. Singing then followed by the choir of which Eddie was for a long time a member. The words were those striking lines of Montgomery, Go to the grave in all thy glorious prime, etc. After which the coffin was lowered to its place by young men who were friends of Edward in his earlier years. The state of the elements was exceedingly favourable to the holding of such an exercise in the open air at a season generally so inclement. The night before there was every appearance of a heavy northeast storm, but Sabbath morning it was calm. As I went to church, I noticed that the sun rested on the Vermont mountains just north of us, though with a mellowed light as if a veil had been thrown over them. In the after part of the day, the open sky had spread southward, so that the interment took place when the air was as mild and serene as spring, just as the last sun of the year was sinking towards the mountains. Almost the entire congregation were present. Thus, dear sister, I have given you a brief account of the solemn but peaceful winding up of what has been to me a sharp and long trial and I know to yourself and family also. In eternity we shall more clearly read the lesson which even now, in the light of opening scenes, 
we are beginning to interpret. End of chapter 7, part 4